we are continuing on in our sermon series in the Gospel of Mark. And so as we do, please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1, verse 21 through 45. That is Mark 1, 21 through 45, a passage that's going to be found under the translator heading, Jesus heals a man with an unclean spirit. Si habla español, abran sus Biblias a Marcos capítulo 1, versículo 21 a 45. El título de la traducción dice, Jesús sana a un hombre con un espíritu inmundo. And if you're not familiar with the Bible, know that this is a safe place to learn how to read the Bible. Each and every week, we're all learning together how to read and how to apply God's Word to our lives. And if you don't have a Bible with you, that's all right. You can find a Bible in the center I always get it wrong, if it's center chair or center aisle, but in the middle of the floor, there's blue Bibles on the ground. You can grab one, you can use one, you can turn to Mark chapter 1, verse 21, or you can open up your phone's browser and jump onto your preferred Bible app of choice. We'll be reading today from the ESV translation. And so, by way of a brief introduction, the book of Mark is a book in our New Testament in the Bible that is known as a gospel. Uh, that was written in the early to late 60s AD. It's the first of four gospel accounts to have been written. And a gospel, the, the genre of gospel, is a book that tells the story of Jesus, very simply put. Above all else, as we're encountering Mark's gospel and, and diving into it, Mark, the author of, of the book, is a storyteller. And he's written his account of Jesus' life and ministry in order to bring us into uh, the story of who Jesus is and what he's done in such a way that our own stories would be changed. And so as a church, we've been engaging in Mark's purpose for writing by asking a crucial question these past two weeks, or three weeks now, got to change that. We've uh, submitted to you as a pastoral team that this question that we're asking as we engage in the book of Mark is not only the most important question we should ask, but also the first question we should ask um, as well. And that question that we're asking in the book of Mark, the big question, is who is Jesus? As we read the gospel of Mark, the first question we should always ask is not, so where do I fit into this story? How is this about me? But who is Jesus? And what is Mark declaring to be true about his story in the gospel? We're looking for it? All right. <laughs> Thank you all for bearing with whatever that is. Yes, the metronome. I hope I'm on time. Lord, help us to focus. But we're asking, who is Jesus? We're looking to live our lives on the basis of not asking first, what should I do? But what has Jesus done? And we need to ask these questions because if we don't start out with Jesus' story, our own story will frankly never make any sense. We must ask these questions because how we live our lives is directly downstream of the reality that, of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. In any given situation of our lives, starting with Jesus and looking to Jesus and not ourselves, will lead us to think, to act, to desire, and to respond to whatever is before us in a way that is both informed and transformed by the greatest story of all time. The greatest story in which our own personal stories truly exist, in which they all live and move and have their being. Church, who Jesus is and what he has done 
has the potential, has the ability to change everything in our lives. And so last Sunday, in the story of Mark, we were taken into the heart of Jesus' story in verses 14 through 20 of chapter 1. Jesus came to announce the gospel of God, the good news that God's kingdom was at hand. And this message, it was the center of Jesus' mission. Last week, we said it was the theme song of his life. He came to announce and to achieve the salvation and redemption that was promised in this coming kingdom of God. He came to announce that the kingdom was here. And then, not just to announce in word, but then to bring that kingdom near, to establish it, to bring it to bear with all of its implications through his life, through his death and his resurrection. And so last week, Jesus, he began his public ministry in the book of Mark by announcing this great story of God's redemption, the best story ever told. And after this, he called four fishermen out of their lesser stories, out of their personal stories into his better story. And the theme song of his life, the story of God's redemption, the story of God's purposes in the world and in our lives, that theme song became their theme song too. And for all those who Christ calls and who receive him by faith, that becomes our song as well. That becomes the heart of who we are and what we ought to do as well. Jesus came and he said that his kingdom is here. And he's called us to follow him into it. And now, as the story unfolds in verses 21 through 45, Jesus demonstrates that the kingdom he's announced last week has arrived in power. He said it was here. He says, I'm bringing it. And now this week we get to behold the arrival of the kingdom demonstrated in the power of Christ. And so, Without any further ado, let's turn to behold four scenes in these verses here, which demonstrate the nearness, the at-handedness of the kingdom. And so we'll read God's word together, and then we're going to pray to ask for God's help to understand it and to apply it. And so beginning in verse 21, Mark writes, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered into the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed. So that they, were, they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once, his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately, he left the synagogue and entered into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now, Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. And immediately, they told him about her. And he came, and he took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak 
because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in a desolate place and people were coming to him from every quarter. This is God's word. Let's pray that God's spirit would come and help us to understand and apply it. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in the scripture. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in the gospel of your son, and that you've not left us on our own to understand these things, but that you've sent and filled us with your spirit, that we might understand your word, that we might apply the word to our lives, that we might live in light of what it tells us is true and is good and is beautiful. And Lord, today I ask that you would help me and fill me with your spirit that I might preach with boldness and with clarity and with all the joy that the gospel brings to us as we see you moving and transforming and working in our lives to do the things that we could never do on our own, but to do the things that manifest your power and your glory and goodness to us. And so I pray, Lord, would you reveal Christ to us as we behold him in these stories? Would you reveal your grace to us afresh, or even for some, Lord, for the first time? Would you allow us to behold who Jesus is, what he's done, and what he can do in our lives today? We ask and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, what a difference a day can make. And I say this because if you caught it, three out of four scenes that we just read in this story, from verse 21 through verse 39, they take place over the course of just one day in Jesus' life. Beginning on the Sabbath day up until the next morning when he's woken up after a a long day of exorcism and healing and the whole town coming out to him. This is a day in the life of Jesus. Um, that is meant to show the reader, to show us, what the typical features of his ministry were. We see things like preaching and teaching. We see exorcism. We see healings. And even though (laughs) chapter 1, verse 40 through 45 is not set within the same 24-hour period as the other scenes, we do well to take note of that section as well, um, as not something that's isolated or crammed in here (laughs) this morning, but as something that is a beautiful illustration a beautiful and vivid representation of what a day in the life of Jesus was all about and how he can change our lives today. 
And so this day in the life of Jesus that we've just read about is meant to change our lives today. Because these four scenes that we've just read, they prove a couple of things to us. They prove that God's kingdom is here. It's happening in Jesus. They prove that it's near, that it's come in power, as we see it demonstrated in these scenes. But, most significantly, these four stories prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that the kingdom that has come in power is a kingdom that is full of grace. And that's the main idea of Mark 1, verse 21 through 45. That the kingdom of God, that Christ came to announce and to achieve and to usher in, the kingdom of God is a kingdom of grace. That is, that our greatest experience of God's powerful reign is through his grace. That Jesus, the kingdom bringer, comes into the world to confront evil, to confront suffering, to confront our human limitation, and yes, even our sin in these opening scenes of his public ministry. And in so doing, we see Christ, as he engages in his ministry, entering into the heart of all that needs redeeming, and he meets it with grace. We see Christ confronting everything in us and in the world around us that needs fixing and remedying that by his grace. We see that his kingdom, it comes in power. And that's a power to change those who enter into it. And really, he not only brings the kingdom near to us, but he brings us near to the kingdom, and he makes us fit and able to enter into it. He brings us in. The coming of the kingdom church is the coming of God's powerful grace. And so we could rightly say that the theme song of Jesus, it's a song sung to the tune of grace. That the kingdom bringer is likewise the bringer of grace. And the great news for us is that his grace is just as near to us today as it was back then in Mark chapter 1. But an important question at this point that you might be asking, or we might need to ask to proceed further, what is grace? We've said the word a lot already. We've sung about it today. You might have some thoughts as to what that could mean or what that might be, but what is grace biblically defined? And simply put, Grace is God taking the initiative toward us to do what we do not deserve and could never do ourselves. That is, grace is his unearned and frankly ill-deserved favor and goodness towards sinners. You see, God is the king, and rebels to his rule, which would be everyone, apart from the salvation that's to be found in Jesus. Rebels to his rule deserve nothing other than punishment for treason to the king. All of us coming into this world as sinners because of Adam and in our own lives sinning in the ways that we deny God, that we refuse to honor him as God, that we break his law, that we think the story of our lives is about us and not about him and try to make it so. All of us being sinners deserve to be treated like enemies of the king. God doesn't owe us anything, yet the good news of the gospel and the good news of this kingdom is that he gives us everything according to his grace. You see, when his kingdom is established through his son, we experience the rule of the king and his power, not in his judgment over us, 
though that would be totally right and totally just, he could show power, he could judge us, and he could leave us as we are, rebels and sinner, and that could be the end of it. But no, we experience his power through his grace. Grace that doesn't just leave us as we are, but transforms us and makes us from enemies into friends of this king, bringing us near to the kingdom as he brings it near to us. And so we see in the gospel that Jesus comes into the world and into our lives with this gracious initiative. He comes and takes the initiative to confront our suffering, to confront our weakness, to confront our sinfulness, our lostness, our uncleanness. You fill in the blank, all with and all according to his grace. He stepped into all of this on that day 2,000 years ago, and today he is just as able to meet us with his great grace. And so this morning there's good news for you that you can enter into and enjoy the kingdom of God's grace today. It is near to you. And this is important that it's near to you because of all the things I've just mentioned, (laughs) there's not one of us who is exempt from those experiences. Not one of us will make it through life or has made it up to this point in life without dealing with evil around us, without dealing with suffering within our lives, sickness, death, discomfort, grief, without dealing with the limitations of being human and being a finite creature who is not God, but every day tries to be God. (laughs) And dealing with our own sin that separates us from God, separates us from each other, and leaves us sitting in guilt, in the debt that we sang about earlier. There's not one of us in this room who is exempt from the experiences of evil, of suffering, of sinfulness, of limitation. But the bad news is that there's not one of us in this room who can deal with those things in and of themselves, who can fix them, who can remedy them, who can find deliverance from any one of those things fully and finally and thoroughly. But that's where the good news of the kingdom breaks in because Christ comes into the world to do what we cannot do. He enters in and takes the initiative to address all of these realities and to lead us into a kingdom established in grace. And so we see in the storyline of Mark that what's so significant about these these triumphs of grace that we read in this section here is that, to quote author Jeremy Treat, these four stories here, they act as a, a foretaste, or as he says, a microcosm of the salvation that Christ ultimately provides in his death and resurrection. We see here that Jesus is demonstrating in individual cases, what he has come to do on the grandest scale. And so these stories that we just read and that we're going to discuss this morning are a picture. They're a representation of the fullness of the redemption that Christ has come to bring into all of our lives, to the lives of all who would believe in him. These individual scenes in the grand story of God's grace uh, breaking into our lives, um, they are meant to persuade us that we not only need the grace of God in Christ, but that it is at hand, it is near, and it is here for us today. We see the grace of God in the story of Christ, and today we both need that story to become our story, and it is very truly possible that by faith that story could become our story. That in Christ and through his gospel, evil and suffering would be addressed in our lives, that we would experience rest in Jesus and that our sin would be put away fully and finally. God must move toward us in grace to do what we can't do ourselves and the good news of Mark chapter one is that he has come to do just that. And so this morning, 
And the rest of our time together, we'll see him doing this, taking the gracious initiative to do what we could never do as we walk through four scenes in which we see the kingdom of God coming near in grace. And we'll behold the confrontation and the triumph of four different things here. Number one, and these will serve as our points for the rest of our time together, we'll see grace in the face of evil. Number two, we'll see grace in the face of suffering. And number three, we'll see the priority of grace. So breaking down our uh, pattern a little bit. But number four, right back to it, we'll see grace in the face of sin. And I'll state these again as we progress through the passage today. But with that, let's enter into the first scene that's before us. That is scene number one, grace in the face of evil. This is verse 21 through 28 in Mark's gospel here. And so, as we read, the first scene of Jesus' ministry getting underway here, of the kingdom being demonstrated, is a synagogue showdown, a synagogue smackdown that paints a picture of the kingdom coming in power via God's victory over evil. As the kingdom bringer himself, Jesus is teaching the people about the coming of God's kingdom with authority that is beyond the authority of the scribes and the leaders of the day, beyond the scholars and the PhDs, but is the authority that is the authority of God himself. As he is teaching of the kingdom, an opponent to his reign comes in to the fore. An opponent to his reign busts in. And during this Sabbath day service, a man who is under the special influence of an unclean spirit, or we could say a demon, comes forward for a dramatic confrontation with Jesus, essentially in the middle of church. So just imagine if somebody burst in right now as I was preaching <laughs> to call me out like this. Somebody burst into the middle of his teaching to challenge him. Evil rears its ugly head. And it's seemingly been running amok in this world that Christ has stepped into as the powers of darkness have been wreaking havoc on people's lives, seen in the case of this man, this individual who was oppressed by a demon. And the demon, he speaks through this man and has assumed that Jesus, calling him out, has come to destroy, he says, us. That is not just himself, but all of his counterparts, all of his compatriots. Jesus has come to destroy and to do battle with these powers of darkness. It's clear from the text here that he and Jesus are on opposite sides. They're not working together. And the demon, he calls out Jesus by name and refers to him as being from Nazareth and being the Holy One of God in verse 24. And one scholar says this naming, um, this idea of naming in the ancient world, it meant that back in the day, exorcists, that is those who would cast out demons, they believed that they could gain power by possession of the demon's name. And perhaps here, the demon, he attempts to no avail to reverse this process. That is, he tries to get the upper hand on Jesus, to overpower him by naming him to see if that'll work to his advantage. And so the demon here, he calls him out. He's right about who Jesus is, that he is the one who's been filled with the Holy Spirit and set apart for God's work of redemption, but he's wrong in his ability to overpower Jesus. For with just one word, just his words alone, Jesus sends the demon packing. He says in verse 25, look with me, he says, be silent and come out of him. This is the idea in the Greek for muzzling. He muzzles the demon, says, shut up and come out of him. Stop talking, stop resisting, stop opposing me, the king. Get out of there. And he silences the demon and he sets free the man who's been oppressed. Jesus here 
in the showdown is winner by knockout. <laughs> and he backs up the authority of the words that he was teaching and announcing as he casts out a demon with just a word. And so imagine this. It's one thing to make a bold claim, like, I'm bringing in the kingdom, but it's another thing entirely to back it up by banishing a demon with just a word. Anybody can say anything. I can go out and declare all kinds of wild and crazy things, but my ability to back those things up, to prove them, to affirm them, will probably be quite lacking. But Christ comes this Galilean carpenter, and says, hey, that kingdom you've been waiting for, the kingdom in which all evil will be defeated and destroyed, I'm bringing it. Okay, but maybe, maybe he is. But then, the man comes. He challenges him, and with just a word, Christ wins the battle. He shows that he has the power to do what he said he would do, that he can truly bring the kingdom in which evil would be defeated. And the effect of this is to cause the crowds to then say, what is this? After they behold this, this spectacle in front of them. Or rather, who is this Jesus? Who is the one who could do something like this? And they begin to, in verses 25, um, excuse me, 27 and 28, they begin to ask the central question of the gospel. To say, who is Jesus? What kind of man can teach like this? Can triumph over evil like this? Jesus uh, has their attention, as he should have ours, to come in and not only announce the kingdom, but to show its conquest over those who would um, array themselves against it. We should be wondering to ourselves, just as they were, that if he can defeat this evil, that if he can defeat this demon, maybe it's true that he has come, in fact, to defeat all evil. And this is exactly the case, church. Just as Jesus confronted this man and his de demonic oppression head on and delivered him from the power of the evil one. Jesus is still delivering people today. He's still opening the eyes of those who have been blinded by the God of this world, as 2 Corinthians 4, chapter 3 says, freeing men and women, freeing all of those who have been saved by the gospel from the deception of Satan and the lies that he puts out into the world. He is still freeing men and women today from the bondage of addiction, from drugs, and from alcohol. He's still freeing people from the crippling anxiety and fear that comes from living in a fallen world full of evil all around us. Church, in the face of war in our world, in the face of all the things that are crashing through your social media timeline with constancy, in the face of violence, not just out there, but around us here in our city, in the face of Satan's work to deceive us, to accuse us, Jesus' grace is greater. And that's demonstrated here in his triumph over the man. And so we see that we have a Savior whom we can trust to deal with all evil. Whether in this life, in our experience now, or the next, Jesus will come and he will bring the judgment and the punishment upon the evil that's deserved. He will put a stop to all evil. And the cross of Christ, it shows us that even when evil seems to prevail, even when it seems to prevail in our own lives, just as it seemed to prevail in the crucifixion of Jesus. His resurrection proves that that is not the case. It proves that evil does not have the last and final word. It proves that the bad guys ultimately won't win. And so Jesus comes to confront evil according to his grace and to prove that he is the one that we can lean into, that we can trust, that we can hang our hopes upon to see evil defeated, both in this life and ultimately in the life to come, because his cross proves 
that evil won't have the last word. And so, after defeating one opponent in the synagogue, Jesus and his company here, they encounter another opponent at the home of Simon. And this brings us to our second scene this morning. And this is scene number two, grace in the face of suffering. And this is verses 29 through 34, grace in the face of suffering. And so this next scene, it transports us into a first century waiting room. Picture like a waiting room in an ER or urgent care um, where you've probably been before. But we get transported into this first century waiting room that portrays the kingdom coming in power as the sick are being healed, as a sign that that new creation that was reversing the effects of the fall, that was reversing thistles and thorns, that was reversing sickness and suffering, that new creation is coming in and through Jesus. He's leading all who would believe in him into a new exodus, out of bondage, into a new creation in which all these things will one day be no more. And so, after besting his opponent and astonishing the crowd in the synagogue, he leaves with his disciples, and they enter into the home of Simon and Andrew, uh, which is kind of Jesus and his uh, group's home base here in Capernaum. And so, just try to imagine this scene as it unfolds. We go from the confrontation and the crowd to a more private and intimate setting here. Look with me at verse 30. It says that, Now Simon's mother-in-law, so we here see that Peter was married, no more said about Peter's wife other than this point, but Peter was married, or is still married, um, lay ill with a fever. And immediately, they told him, they told Jesus about her. And he comes into her, and he comes in to address the suffering that she's experiencing. And we see here that she's not on death's door, but she is suffering. And Jesus, he walks right into the thick of that suffering that she's experiencing. He enters into it. And the disciples already have seen his power, and they think that just maybe, maybe, the one who triumphed in the face of evil would meet this sufferer in grace as well. And so he enters into the room where she's laying sick in bed. And Jesus enters in, and I, I imagine, you know, as contrasted to the synagogue showdown, he enters in very simply, very gently, very tenderly. And he comes in and it says, he takes her by the hand. He comes to reach out to, uh, to touch the sufferer. And he lifts her up out of bed. This uh, lifting up is a foreshadowing of resurrection language, right? The ultimate overcoming and reversal of sickness and death in the fall. He lifts her up out of bed so that it says the fever, it leaves her. <laughs> She's been cured. She's been healed and her newfound health is uh, displayed in the text in the way that she turns around and immediately begins to serve her guest. And you might think that's weird. If you just got over being sick, you might just take some personal time. But she immediately goes, oh, I got company over. I got to serve him something to, to eat and drink because this is back in the ancient world and back in that culture. Uh, she has not been able to be hospitable as she would like to be. And as soon as she's healed, she shows her newfound health by going, I'm hosting. <laughs> and I got to make sure my guests have something to eat and that they're taken care of here. But we see she is lifted up out of sickness into service of Christ. And he's able to bring her from one to the next. So we see Jesus in this very simply, but I think very profoundly for us. He, he takes the sufferer right by the hand and he restores her. He steps directly into the midst of her suffering and expresses his power to comfort and to restore the sufferer with beautiful tenderness 
and with grace. Church, our suffering, just like the suffering of Peter's mother-in-law, it's transformed by Jesus and his nearness to us. As we were remarking earlier, we don't have some abstract um, belief in some abstract Savior. We have a person in whom we trust. We have a Savior who came for us. God the Son who took on flesh to live amongst the humanity he created, the humanity that rebelled, the humanity that was in need of restoration and his grace. And he came into our lives. That's because he's come into the life of Peter's mother-in-law. And we have a person still today who reigns in heaven, interceding for us at the right hand of God to whom we can come with all of our burdens, with all of our needs, with all of our suffering and be comforted. Just the same, he is there to take our hand in the midst of our suffering and to provide us the comfort of his presence with us. At the very least, Jesus shows us that we are never alone as his people in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of the difficulty, in the struggle that it is to live in this fallen world in which sickness and suffering and death are all around. We have a person whose presence alone is a comfort to us. But not only do we experience his presence, but his power comes in to transform our suffering as well. We see that Jesus can take away her fever. He can restore, he can heal, he can make new. And as he does so, this leads to the consequence of the word getting out to the entire village. And they hear about this man who took away this fever. And it says that they decide, well, who else can we bring in to see him? And his waiting room, it fills up with patience quite quickly. It says in verse 33, and the whole city came to be after sundown, gathered together at the door. <laughs> they bring everyone who's sick and demon-possessed to him, and the house is surrounded by a bunch of sick and demon-possessed people. <laughs> Just try to imagine that waiting room, right? Imagine the waiting rooms you've been in, where you're seeing everybody sneezing and sniffling, and they're sick, but you go, well, at least I'm not as sick as they are, and I want to kind of stay away from them because I don't want to get sick going to the doctor. But, you know, that kind of happens. But just imagine that. <laughs> imagine this waiting room. And think back to the last time you were in a situation like this, that kind of ER, that kind of urgent care, and you just took a look around the room, and you saw all those people. <laughs> you saw yourself visibly sick, suffering, sniffling, sneezing, in pain, a bunch of people just hoping for some relief. <laughs> These aren't the places we want to be in. These are the places that remind us of the fall and all the effects of sin in the world and the death and the decay and the breaking down of the bodies in which we live. <laughs> all the things that have come in through sin. And all these folks <laughs> were gathered together in a big old waiting room surrounding this house hoping that maybe just maybe Christ would heal, Christ would restore, Christ would make new what was old and decayed and wrong in them. And one by one, people are brought before Jesus and he encounters no patient he cannot cure. He comes in with grace and with power to meet those who are sick and suffering and demon-oppressed and he cures them, he frees them, he releases them from the discomfort and brings them into his comfort and restoration. All these people, and think about this. Think about the varied ways in which you suffer, or even know people around you who are suffering from different things, even right now. All of these people, and all the variety of their suffering, and all the variety of their discomfort, and all the variety of things that were wrong and off, Christ comes, and one by one, he meets them as they are, he meets them where they are, and he meets them with his comfort and his power. 
to transform their suffering according to his grace. And just like Peter's mother-in-law, he comes to us today with the same ability. He comes to us today with the same sympathy and heart to take us by the hand in the midst of whatever suffering you're experiencing right now, whatever discomfort you're in the midst of. If you're dealing with sickness, if you're dealing with death that is looming around you in some way or another, if you're experiencing grief, whatever it might be, he comes to comfort us with the hope that just as he foreshadows here on this day, that one day he is going to make it so that all things are new and crying and sickness and mourning and pain and death even will be no more because they'll be swallowed up in his victory when the kingdom comes in full. He comes today to comfort us with the hope of that day. He comes today to be with us in the midst of our suffering. He comes today even in the presence of his church. And he gives us to each other to transform the way we walk through suffering together. He's manifesting his care and his presence to his people through his church so that we don't suffer as those who suffer alone. We don't weep by ourselves, but he gives us to each other to weep with those who weep, to bear one another's burdens, to unburden ourselves, and to receive service and care and encouragement. Christ is caring for his people today. Christ is speaking to suffering and sickness and death and all these effects of the fall today. And he's doing so according to his grace. And he's being, as we've seen here in Mark's gospel so far, he's being very effective at it, just as he can be today. But back here, he's really got something going. Everyone is coming. Everyone is being healed. But even as we've already read this morning, Jesus won't stay in town. He won't stay and open up a healing practice and then start one clinic and then expand out to another. And then soon he's got the whole northern region of Galilee filled up with these Jesus centers. Uh, He's not going to do that. He's not going to expand his practice and refuse to leave until he's eradicated all disease, every last square inch of it. But why? Why wouldn't he? That seems like a good thing to do. Why wouldn't he stay and continue to heal and to cast out demons and to carry on in the good work that he has began? Why won't he stay in the village and expand the successful practice? The next scene, it answers this question for us. That brings us to the third scene, which is the priority of grace. So we've seen grace in the face of evil, grace in the face of suffering, and here is really the center of the passage this morning that holds out to us very clearly the priority of grace in the mission of Jesus, the priority of grace in our lives as his people. So this third scene is set up and framed by Jesus going away from the crowd and from the activity and just trying to take a moment to pray when the whole world seems to be knocking at his door. In the midst of all the good work that he's doing, he pulls away. It says in verse 35, he rises early that next morning. Crazy 24 hours it's been for him. And while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place and there he prayed. And this is the setup here. He is getting away. The world is knocking. The world is coming. There's plenty of good work and plenty of need abounding. Um, But this scene, in the midst of all the good work that Jesus is doing, it presents the priority of the gospel message in the kingdom mission. Though Jesus has proven successful in Capernaum, and though, as Simon and, and company will make clear in verse 37, that there's still plenty of need here, they say, everyone is looking for you. Don't go. We have more to do here. Jesus says, it's time to hit the road. And as we'll see, quoting scholar R.T. France, while the inhabitants of Capernaum want Jesus to stay, and the disciples apparently share that hope, 
Jesus' sense of mission compels him to leave an apparently fruitful and popular ministry in order to extend his proclamation of the kingdom of God through the rest of Galilee. And so, this is where this is headed. A movement away from this town onto the next one. And this movement to the other towns is precipitated by Christ's movement away from the house. Movement away from the crowd, moving away from the activity to be alone with God in prayer. And as opposed to just glossing over that detail in the story, (laughs) that's not insignificant to us. It's not a throwaway detail that this is how the scene starts. This scene that's at hand for us, it does say something important (laughs) about who Jesus is and what he's come to do that is meant to shape our stories as well. And Mark 135 here in this paragraph, among all the things that it does tell us about who Jesus is and what he's come to do, it indicates that Jesus' story, and get this, is a story of rest. We see this. Even though Jesus, according to his divinity, he, he, he worked on the Sabbath, right? Just like God never stops working. God can work on the Sabbath because God is God. He worked on the Sabbath on the day of rest because God is always working. But being the God-man, according to his humanity, he also sought rest. And he arose the next morning after that very long Sabbath day and departed, went out to the desolate place, and there he prayed to commune with God the Father, to be strengthened and to rest in his presence. So we see in the midst of Jesus' life, his perfect life of obedience to God's will, he rested. (laughs) He prayed and he got away from the onslaught of activity and hurry and the tyranny of the urgent that's facing him and that faces us as well. He lived a life, church, that was perfectly pleasing to God, and this included rest. It meant um, more than always working for God, but it also meant resting in God. According to his humanity, Christ, just like us, he could not be everywhere at once. He could not meet every need at a certain time that existed, and he could not maintain a sprinter's pace throughout every second of life. He shared our limitations, but there's grace in the midst of those limitations. There's grace in the midst of the weariness we feel as limited and finite creatures, not being God, but being his people who are dependent upon him. And so this means for us that rest ought to be a part of our story and that God in his grace has given us rest in his son. He's given us not just a mission, not just a task, but the ability, the encouragement, the necessity to find rest in him and to further our mission as his people, not just through work, but through rest, through rest in who he is and through rest in what he has done. And so the story of the gospel, it includes a rest for us. As disciples, we'll glorify God and we won't fall short on faithfulness to God if we prioritize rest for our bodies and souls. And I don't know about you, but that's good news to me. That's good news that Christ models, gives us the permission, shows us that a life of faithfulness to God is most about our resting in God. Not about what we do. It's about grace. We're not depending on our own works to stay in God's favor, to continue to please him, but we're resting in who he is and what Christ has done for us to bring us into this rest. His finished work upon the cross gives us the rest for our souls. His invitation to come and to cast our cares and to cast our burdens upon him gives us the invitation to stop and to carry on in life and to bear our burdens like they don't all depend on us to uphold and to figure out and to work through and to think through. He invites us to rest, a rest he's achieved 
through the cross. A rest he's achieved by uh, putting away what separated us from God, which we'll talk about in our next point, and a rest that is available to, all, to us all according to faith. And so our story has the grace for rest. Um, and now back to Jesus' story. We see that Simon and, and company, they interrupt his rest, though, even as he's pursuing it and seeking it, um, with the news as we read that there's more healing to be done. Everyone is looking for Jesus. The need is great in the surrounding area, but Jesus says, no, I won't stay in this town. I won't continue to meet this particular need. So the question is, why does he want to move on? And verse 38 answers this question for us. Look with me at verse 38. Jesus says to them in response, he says, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. For, he says, statement of purpose, that is why I came out. He came, he says, to preach. The kingdom bringer has come to preach, to proclaim, to share and to announce a message. And this focus right here on proclamation, that is really what centers us on the priority of grace. And what I mean by that is because at the very center of this preaching that Jesus was conducting, that he was doing, was that God, more than anything, in his grace, was forgiving the sins of his people. He came to defeat evil. He came to bring them into a new creation. But most importantly, and actually hinging uh, those two realities together, he came to forgive the sins of his people. On the cross where he bore our sin, that's where he disarmed Satan and the powers and the rulers. Through the cross and through us being cleansed of our sin and all that separated us from him, we can enter into that new creation, right? Into that life together with God. If there is no forgiveness of sins, there is no defeat of evil. There is no new creation, restoration. It all hinges upon the most important work that God has come to do through his son, which is to reconcile us to himself. And so Christ says, even though there's plenty of good work to do, we can continue to cast out demons and we could continue to heal here. What I've come to do, most importantly, is to declare to all who would receive it and all who would believe it that there is a way to be reconciled to God, that there is forgiveness of sins to be found in me and through the work that I will do upon the cross. Through my death and resurrection, you might come to be reconciled to God, the King, whom you've rebelled against. I need to get out of this town and into the other towns because I got to tell people about this grace, the grace of God to forgive us in our sin. Though we deserve judgment, he's come to make us friends. He's come and Christ has come to take away our sin from us. And so we see the priority of grace here and the ministry of Jesus. He wants to get on to preaching this message of grace about God doing the greatest good to sinners and forgiving their sins through the work of the Son. Christ has come to tell people about this message. He's come to bring us into this message and into this story, into this gospel as well. Because while the realities of disease and even of demonic oppression, these aren't insignificant things, there is a greater sickness still. And this sickness is, is sin. And he's come ultimately to cure this sickness. Sin, that is mankind's rebellion against God's rules. Our unfaithfulness to keep his laws and his commands as revealed in scripture. Our desire to worship, to love, and to live for other things as primary and ultimate in our life, apart from the God who has made us to worship him, to love him, and to live for him. Christ can't stay in Capernaum and commit himself to the good work that's there when the gospel work of announcing God's redemption of sinners remains at hand. He must go and get out this news, this best news 
of a better kingdom in which the king is coming not to judge, but to redeem and to restore. And so we see here the priority of grace is expressed in this proclamation of the gospel that Christ was all about, um, that this was at the heart of Christ's kingdom mission. He came out for this gospel work. And finally, this brings us into our last scene, where just as Christ came out for this gospel work, in this final scene, we see the gospel at work. He came out ultimately for the forgiveness of sinners. And in this fourth scene, in verses 40 through 45, we see a vivid and beautiful display an illustration for us of what it looks like for sinners to be forgiven, for those who are separate from God to be reunited to God in the Son, to be reconciled to the one they were separate from. This final scene is God's grace in the face of sin. Verses one, or excuse me, 40 through 45, grace in the face of sin. We behold grace and power to transform and change us in this scene where it matters most. Let's read uh, these verses once more. It says, Christ, having left Capernaum, going out and preaching and proclaiming the good news of the gospel of the kingdom, as he's going about this work, maybe the next day even, maybe later that day, it says, and a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling and said to him, if you will, make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. It's a story about a healing of a leper. In this final scene, it features Jesus touching the untouchable. And it's a beautiful picture of the grace of the gospel and forgiveness of sin. As he goes from town to town, a leper comes to him. And a leper is somebody back in the day who has kind of the grossest, gnarliest, and most infectious sort of ancient disease. One of them. <laughs> One that was practically um, without cure at the time. His leprosy, it separates him from the worship of God because according to the Old Testament law, he's ritually unclean. He cannot come into the temple to worship. He can't gather around God's people like others would. It also separates him from other people from the community because he has this disease, so they want to stay clear of him because they don't want to become unclean like him through contact with him. This man lives in an existence of separation. He's separate from God, separate from others, and nothing he can do. <laughs> Try to imagine what it must be like to be this guy. Nothing he can do can take this away. This man has no hope in himself to change himself. But then Jesus comes to town. Jesus comes into his life. And this leper, hearing of Jesus' power and believing that just maybe the redemptive reign of God's kingdom is breaking into the world in and through him, he falls to his knees and he stretches out an empty, leprous, skin-diseased hand in faith, asking to be healed. He said, if you will, make me clean. If you will, make me clean. And he might as well have said, cure my incurable disease. Do the impossible for me, Jesus. Yet, he trusts that Jesus can do what he cannot do. He believes that it's not a matter of ability for Jesus, but it's a matter of his willingness only to do so. He's confident that if Jesus were to make him clean, he would in fact be clean. That he would be transformed, restored, and no longer separate 
from God and for others. And so he falls upon his knees and he casts himself upon the mercy of Jesus. And so here's a leper with all of his uncleanness coming before the Holy One of God with nothing but the empty, leprous hand of faith reaching out to lay hold upon his mercy. And what's Jesus' response? Does he say, oh, be gone from me, you leprous man. I don't want to be defiled by you. You're untouchable to me. I don't want to go there. Your life is too messy for me to enter in and to do any kind of work. No. Jesus, it says, is moved to respond as he's moved with pity. That is deep compassion for this man. His heart goes out to this outcast who was through his disease unfit for society and unable to worship God. And Jesus, it says, receives him with compassion. He touches the untouchable and completely removes his disease. And this is crazy because this would make Jesus unclean according to the law and according to how the disease would work. But so holy is Jesus that he makes the unclean clean. So much more powerful is his story that this man, as he receives Christ, receives that story as his own. Like King Midas touching things and making them gold. <laughs> like bleach mating with bacteria and grime and always winning. The bleach doesn't become dirtier because of the bacteria and grime. It cuts through. It changes and transforms what it touches. Christ receives this man and this hand of faith. He's not defiled, but instead this man is changed. This man is transformed. This man is made to be more like Jesus than Jesus is made to be like this man. He heals the man of the disease. He tells him to keep quiet about it, but instead to go to the priest and to show that he's been ritually cleansed so that they can verify it, so that he can reenter society, and the man goes on his way. And this is all wonderful. <laughs> it really is. But what's even more wonderful is the picture of the gospel that this represents. And consider this, church. For... Even as Jesus was made famous here in this scene for healing the physical leper, for doing the impossible, for doing what this man could never do on his own, he'd become even more famous for what he could do for every spiritual leper, spiritual leper that would draw near to him. And what do I mean by this? That because of our sin, in one sense, left to ourselves, we're all untouchable to God. We cannot draw near to him with the guilt and corruption of sin we are unacceptable to the Holy One and we have no ability in ourselves to make ourselves fit for his presence. This is bad news. This is not a happy ending to our story. But the good news of the gospel is that there is a hopeful ending for every spiritual leper sick with sin and aware of their inability to measure up before God who would stretch out their hand to Jesus. And as we stretch out the hand of faith, acknowledging our sin, acknowledging our inability to restore the fellowship that we've lost with God, Jesus will receive us. And this morning, the good news of Mark chapter 1 and the grace that comes to meet us in our sin is that the leper shows us that even though we cannot change the leper's spots, even as we sing, God can. The leper shows us that wherever we are in life, whatever's going on right now, whatever's going wrong right now in us, there's no place where we are too untouchable, too unclean, or too far gone for Jesus to meet us, to enter into our lives and to change us according to his grace as we reach out with a hand of faith. And this is the good news of the gospel. This is the good news of the grace of Christ that's here for us today. And if this is something that you're hearing for the first time and you're seeing and beholding Jesus, I implore you, even as the leper implored him, to reach out that hand of faith 
and to grab hold of Jesus. Wherever you are, he will not cast you out, but he will receive you and he'll make you new. As you look to his cross as that which has taken care and gotten rid of your sin and your guilt before God and has made a way for you to come to him, he will receive you into his family. He will receive you into his fellowship. He will make you new. And even for some of us who have believed, but maybe now find ourselves in a place where we doubt God's grace toward us is as present. Let the leper remind you. Let him assure you that wherever you are today, even as you've strayed, even as you find yourself in a place where you go, oh man, I'm really far off from where God would want me to be. Is there grace for me? Stretch out the hand of faith. That leprous, dirty, and defiled hand and receive Jesus afresh. He will not cast you out, but wherever you are, he will welcome you. He will receive you and he will meet you with grace. Because the kingdom he came to bring and the kingdom that we can enjoy and experience now, church, is a kingdom of grace. Let's pray.